You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, go with me today to the book of Matthew. And chapter 14 is where we'll spend our time today. We're going to finish out the book, uh, or the book of Matthew. We're going to finish out in chapter 14 today. Um, but uh, go with me there to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Uh, so if you're about halfway, open your Bibles. You go to the, the right some more. You'll run in there. Uh, if you're using an app, it's in the New Testament. It'll be the first book in the New Text- Testament section of scripture. The aim of Matthew's biography of Jesus as recorded in the book of Matthew is to show that Jesus is king. And every teaching that we have seen, every story that Matthew tells is pointing his reader to who Jesus is. That Jesus is the king. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 53, and following, what is beginning to happen is people are beginning to recognize who Jesus is. They're beginning to see that he is the promised Messiah that has been prophesied in the Old Testament who would come, this promised king who would come. And what it's causing to happen in this moment is that people are either beginning to reject Jesus or they're beginning to recognize him. And in Matthew 13, 53 through 58, what you find is Jesus is rejected by his hometown. The people that grew up with him, the people that ate at his table, at his family's table, and he ate at their family table, they are rejecting him. And in verse 57 of Matthew 13, it says they took offense at him. They were stumbling over Jesus. So they rejected Jesus. And then at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, you are introduced to a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod the Tetrarch, as it says in in Matthew uh, chapter 14. But Herod the Antipas is this guy who is jealous of John the Baptist. So he has John the Baptist put in prison because he's calling out his sin. Eventually has John the Baptist beheaded um, because of a party that he threw and a dance that was done in front of him and and committing the kingdom to him. And so the, the request was to have John the Baptist beheaded. And he has him beheaded because there's this growing animosity towards the message that John the Baptist had, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, the same message Jesus is sharing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus knows that this beheading of John the Baptist, that he is the next in line, that he is the one to come next because he is preaching the same message. And so they are coming after Jesus. So Jesus withdraws to a desolate place by himself. Well, the crowd follows Jesus there and Jesus continues to teach them. And as we saw last week, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five pieces of bread. That he feeds 5,000 plus people. And, And in this moment, the disciples are beginning to recognize who Jesus is. They're beginning to see that he is the promised Messiah. That he is the king that they have been waiting for. As he says, we're going to feed them. Right? They're like, we need to send them away. And Jesus is like, no, you're going to feed them. And they're thinking, how are we going to do this? They see their need and they say, Jesus, all we have is five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus takes and feeds 5,000 people through the disciples. He gives the bread to them and the fish to them. And they go give it to the people. And when they come back, Jesus got more. They go give it and they come back. And the Bible says they, they feed the people till not just they get a sack lunch and they're good to go, but he feeds them to the place that they're satisfied and there's 12 baskets full left over for each one of the disciples to take with them. 
This is how they are beginning to see who God is, who Jesus is. And then we come to verse 22 today, and we're going to eventually get to the key verse in all of Matthew chapter 14. But let's work through some more of the stories. This narrative continues to unfold as we're recognizing and specifically the disciples are seeing Jesus for who he is. Look at verse 22. Immediately, he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he tells his disciples, I want you to get in the boat and I want you to go to the other side. And it's interesting that he uses the word made. So this wasn't like an optional thing with Jesus for his disciples. This is Jesus telling them what to do. Get in the boat and go to the other side. We know part of the reason that Jesus is doing this is because the crowd is wanting to make Jesus their earthly king right now. In John chapter 6, you can study the story and find that Jesus is really exposing their heart, that they don't want Jesus to be the king of their life. They want Jesus to be their earthly king so that when they're hungry, physically speaking, they can come get bread. Because they don't like being under the rule of Rome. And so Jesus seems like a way better ruler than, than the Roman rulers are, than Herod is. And so they're saying, Jesus, we want to make you king. But Jesus knew their heart. And this is when Jesus makes that famous statement in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. What he's saying is you're not seeking me because you want really me. You want what I can give to you. So this is why Jesus immediately sends his disciples in a boat to go to the other side because he knows what, what their heart is and what they're after with Jesus. They're not really seeing Jesus for who he is, the Son of God. Verse 23, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. All throughout the life of Jesus, what you find is Jesus getting away to pray. I think that's pretty significant for us as followers of Jesus to know Jesus' habit of prayer. Why does a person pray? A person often prays because of dependence on the one they're praying to. Right? Jesus is modeling for us dependence on his heavenly father. As he goes away by himself to pray, he is saying, I, Father, I need your help. As the growing polarization of the people, those who are rejecting me and those who are accepting me, and the, the chasm is becoming wider and wider, and the hatred for me is going to grow and grow because of who I am claiming to be, that I am God. As that is growing, Lord, I need your help. Jesus modeled for us what we should live in our life in prayer. Is that prayer shows our dependence on God. And so if I were to spend time with you this week, was prayer a part of your relationship with God? Would I see a dependence on God through praying to him? It's not that you necessarily have to have a certain time and a place that you pray, although I think those are good things to do, but would there be a sense of dependence on him? That's what we see in the life of Jesus, that he was dependent on his father. So he often got away to pray. And this is what he's doing in this moment is he's spending time with his father. It says when evening came, he was there alone on the mountain by himself. Verse 24, but the boat, the one that he had put his disciples in and sent them across the sea, uh, but the boat by this time was long way from land, probably we estimate uh, two or three to four miles, two to four miles away from where Jesus was. And in this two to four miles, the, the boat had been beaten by the waves and the wind against them. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to the disciples walking on the sea. So picture the, the moment here. Jesus has sent his disciples ahead of him. He goes up on the mountain to spend time alone with his father. While the disciples are on the sea and they're rowing, a storm comes. 
And so for what we'd estimate about seven or eight hours, the disciples are trying to row across the sea and they only get two or three miles away from land as they're trying to row across the sea because the storm is so violent and the storm has come against them. You can imagine that the disciples are discouraged. They know this is what the Lord has called them to do, but to get across the sea, it's been a little bit difficult. And the Lord sees them in the midst of the storm, and he comes and he walks beside him. That fourth watch of the night, just so we understand the context, is between 3 and 6 a.m. That would be considered the fourth watch watch of the night. So six to nine was the first watch. Nine to midnight was the second watch. Midnight to three was the third watch of the night. So the fourth watch would have been three to six a.m. So he's probably sent the disciples out in the first watch of the night, six to nine. And now he's showing up between three and six a.m. So they've been struggling with this storm for a long time. And Jesus walks up beside them on the sea. Not on the bridge, not on land, on the sea. How incredible would that moment have been to see Jesus walking on the sea? That's not how that works, right? You don't walk on water. And yet in this moment, Jesus walks up beside the disciples. Here's what's funny about Mark's account of this same story. Mark says Jesus was passing by them. So Mark implies Jesus wasn't even going necessarily to be with them. It was just a shorter path to get to the other side. So he didn't want to walk around. And when you can walk on water, you walk on water. You know what I'm saying? And so he's just walking by them. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that piece of the story. Mark says that. And again, that was Mark's perspective of the story that Jesus wasn't even going to stop. But look at what happens to the disciples when they see What we know to be Jesus, they don't realize it's him. So look at verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. What a perfect text for this week. You know what I'm saying? They saw a ghost. This had to be October the 31st in uh, biblical times that when this was happening, right? What a perfect, I wanted to say that in my e-news this week or the weekly, but I didn't. But I just love that on Halloween week that we would have the disciples thought it was a ghost. Now, here's what they think, and, and here's what they were thinking when they saw Jesus. What they believed about the sea was that evil spirits lived in the sea. So do you remember when Jesus cast out the evil spirits and they go into the pigs? Where do the pigs run into? The sea, right? So that was the idea is that evil spirits lived in the sea. So when they see Jesus walking on the water, probably why they were terrified is they think that's an evil spirit. That's what they're seeing. Another idea that they had in this time was that that people who drowned in the sea haunted the sea. So when you're out there on the sea and you see something in the clouds, that's the people who have drowned in the sea. And so it would be a natural reaction for them to see someone walking on the water and be like, it's a ghost. It's either either an evil spirit or it's this person who died, who drowned in the sea that, that is haunting it. And I love that Matthew says, but immediately, so they're crying out in fear, yelling, it's a ghost. And didn't Jesus didn't say trunk or treat, <laughs> you know, or trick or treat? Uh, Jesus immediately says to them, "Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid." In this moment, when the disciples are terrified, because they know the superstition of the evil spirits in the sea and the superstition of this this uh, those from the dead haunting the sea, Jesus in this moment would say. Relax, fellas. I am. You see, that term, it is I, could actually be translated, I am. Now, I heard some of you go, hmm. Why did we go, hmm, in that moment? Because Jesus, in this moment, 
is claiming to be God. When somebody says, I am, they are claiming to be God in Scripture. So our minds go back to Genesis chapter 17 in verse 1, when God says, I am God Almighty. In Exodus chapter 3, God declares, I am the God of your father Abraham and Isaac and, and of Jacob. And finally, he proclaims to, uh, to Moses and he says, before he says, I am who I am. When you go stand before Pharaoh and he asks, who is this God that you're talking about? You say, I am who I am. Isaiah says that God says, I am he who blots out your transgression. Again, in Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other if you read the Gospel of John, you find that Jesus makes seven I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And even in John's Gospel, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So as we read this text, and even if you do some calculating of the text, the center of this story is this statement, I am. It is showing us who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. He says to the boys, relax, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid because God's here. Jesus is God. Look at verse 28, Peter answered him. I don't know that Jesus asked a question, but Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter sees Jesus say, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. I am, do not be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, really a better translation would not be if it is you. The better translation would be since it is you. Because Peter recognized who Jesus is, he says, Lord, since it is you, let me come to you on the water. Now, remember, the theme of the book of Matthew is Jesus is king. And in this statement that Peter makes, we see another hint to the reality of Matthew saying, this is what I'm trying to show you that Jesus is king. Let me show you how we see that. When Peter says to Jesus, command me to come to you. That phrase in the Greek language is what a king would use to command people. So he is addressing Jesus as king. When he's saying, because you're the king, command me to come to you. It's pretty cool how Matthew is woven throughout every chapter this idea that Jesus is the king. And even in Peter's statement to Jesus, he is saying Jesus is the king. Since you are who you say you are, let me come to you. In verse 29, Jesus says to Peter, come. Don't you love Jesus? He doesn't say to Peter, have you thought through this? Like, maybe you need to take a minute and think about it, pray about it, right? No. Jesus, in his kindness and love, says, come on, Peter, come to me in the water. So Peter gets out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. What a significant moment in the life of Peter. I mean, can you imagine experiencing this moment with Jesus? You're not supposed to walk on water. But in this moment... Peter is walking on water to Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, it, like core memories, right? That would be a core memory for your life. What I find interesting, though, about Peter is Peter goes on to write two books of the Bible. Peter goes on to preach messages in the book of Acts. And what I find interesting is that a moment for us, like this would be a core memory. And if ever I had an opportunity to share, I would tell the story about me walking on water to Jesus. Nowhere outside of the Gospels do you find Peter talk about walking on water. When Peter introduces his books of the Bible that he wrote, he doesn't say, Peter, the guy that walked on water and an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Like that would be a, like I want people to know that I walked on water, right? That's not Peter. Instead, Peter, as he introduces first Peter, says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. As he introduces second Peter, he says, Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, the point of the story isn't Peter walking on water. Peter knows that as well. And Peter knows that the point of the story is the one he is walking to. The point of the story is the power of Jesus, that he has all authority and power. And he's actually in this moment giving Peter the same power and authority that he has as he walks towards him on the water. But it is all about the one he is going towards. Then you have verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, so picture all that we've talked about so far, they're still in a storm. Jesus doesn't walk up and there's like this cloud around him. There's no storm, right? Like uh, there's a storm still going on. Even as Peter is walking towards Jesus in the water, the wind and the storm is still happening. And the Bible says, Peter was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. I know sometimes we're hard on Peter, like because he's a ready, shoot, aim kind of guy. But I love that in this moment, as Peter is walking on the water and he gets distracted by the waves and the storm that he's in, that in the moment that he begins to sink, he doesn't think of himself and say, you know what, I deserve this. I should have prayed through that and thought through it better. I'm such a loser. What does he do in this moment? He cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. What I picture is that Peter got into the water and he had moments like we have where it's like, did I really just make that decision? For me, this happens when I go to amusement park with my kids. And it's like, hey, dad, you want to ride the roller coaster with me? I don't want to be the uncool dad that's sitting there with the drinks waiting for them to come back. So it's like, sure, let's do that. And you know how this goes, don't you? You start, you know, going up the, the mountain and you get to the top. And I always think, man, this was a horrible idea. I totally regret this idea. And then you just got to go with it for the next minute and it destroys your life for the next week. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what happened to Peter in this moment is he gets into the water and it's like, this is a good idea. But then life happens and it's like, ugh. Not a good idea anymore, right? So he cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Look at Jesus' response in verse 31. Jesus immediately. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, let me give you a second. Let me get some water in your lungs so that you know what a loser you are, that you should have thought through that. Look at what he says. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. What a cool moment. He doesn't step on his head and say, you deserve this. Let me, let me suffer a little bit. No, immediately Jesus reaches out his hand, takes Peter's hands, and he says to Peter, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I want you to understand this word doubt is not in the sense that a theological doubt that he didn't believe who God was or who Jesus was in this moment. This word doubt really has the idea of a practical hesitation, a wavering. The idea could be between two minds. Like Peter knows who Jesus is, but when he gets in the water and he's walking towards Jesus, he doubts a little bit, not in the sense that he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. He doubts in the sense of what have I done? Practically speaking, I believe that Jesus is God, but this is really scary out here on the water with the waves hitting up against me. This, this is a difficult situation I find myself in. And he says, oh, you of little faith. The idea is faithless. Again, it's not that Peter doesn't have enough faith. The idea is that Peter lacks a practical confidence in who God is. That as he has seen God provide for him, that God will practically continue to provide for him. And so Jesus reaches out his hand, pulls him out of the water. 
And again, in a loving way, says, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Why did you, practically speaking, why didn't you just continue to look at me and know that I've, I've got you? Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Again, noting that at that moment, the storm was still happening until Jesus and Peter got into the boat. And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now, why does Matthew shared this story with us when no other author in Scripture shares the story of Peter. If you go read the story in Mark, if you read the story in John, nobody talks about Peter walking on water. Only Matthew talks about Peter walking on water. Why does he do that? Well, I believe verse 33 is the reason why he shows this story of Peter walking on water so that we can come to the climax of Matthew 14, to what all the the feeding of the 5,000, the rejecting of Jesus, the walking on water, the, 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 the calming of the storm leads to verse 33, this pinnacle of the book of, of chapter 14, when he says this, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is the moment of Matthew 14 that should capture our hearts. That this is them realizing who Jesus is and saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 8, they had a similar story with Jesus? When Jesus is asleep under the boat, remember that, and a storm comes? And they go down to Jesus and they're freaking out like, Jesus, we're going to die in this storm. And Jesus talks to them in the same way and he calms the storm. What was their response in Matthew chapter 8? Their response in Matthew chapter 8 is not truly you are the son of God. Their response in Matthew chapter 8 is who is this guy? What we're seeing unfold in the pages of Matthew is the disciples' faith in Jesus is growing. More and more, they're seeing who Jesus is. So the first time they were on the sea with Jesus and a storm came, they were like, who is this guy that can calm the winds in the sea? Now, in Matthew chapter 14, when they're on the sea and it's going crazy and they're rowing towards the other part of uh, the other side of the sea and they can't get there and Jesus calms the sea and Peter walks on water and he says it is I this time they respond with truly you are the son of God they are seeing Jesus for who he is you see up till this moment the disciples had never said Jesus is the son of God We see Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 give a commentary pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We see the devil refers to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 as the Son of God. We see the Father when he's uh, uh, anointing or Jesus is baptized and the Father comes down and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But for the first time, the light bulb comes on for the disciples and they see Jesus for who he is and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. Verses 34 through 36 of Matthew chapter 14 are transitioning us then from this, these three miracles of, of Jesus walk, uh, taking the five loaves and two fish and, and multiplying them, of Jesus walking on water, of Jesus calming the sea. And now he's transitioning us to the next part of this narrative when he says this in verse 34. And when they had crossed over, Mark would say that when Jesus calmed the sea, they were immediately on the other side of the lake. So a little bit of a contradiction there between what Mark said and what Matthew said. But eventually they get to the other side and they come to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all, all who were sick and implored him that they might not only touch the, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. So again, Jesus, the recognition of Jesus is becoming more and more known And they know if they can just get close enough to Jesus to touch the edge of his garment, that they will be healed. And Jesus, in his compassion and in his grace, heals them. Our natural response to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36, is to look at Peter and the disciples and say, we see ourselves in them. We have days when we struggle with life. 
We have days when we're rowing for seven to nine hours and feel like we're not making any progress. We have days when we feel like this is what the Lord has put us in and why did he put us in this situation? We also look at Peter and his disciples and we have moments in our life where like Peter, we get out of the boat. We take that step of faith and we move towards the Lord. We talk to people about Christ. We don't give in to our besetting sin. We don't lose our temper with people. We have those good days like Peter had in that moment. But may I remind you that the point of the text is not for us to see ourselves. The point of the text is for us to see who Jesus is. Matthew's point to his audience, to his readers, is don't you see yourself in the disciples? That's not his point. Don't you see yourself in Peter? Don't you see yourself in the disciples? That's not what he's after. Matthew's point is, don't you see who Jesus is? He is the Son of God. He is the I Am. He has all authority. He is the king. So the question we should ask of this section of scripture is, who is Jesus? And verse 33 makes it clear who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And the disciples are seeing that clearer and clearer as they're moving through life with Jesus. They are seeing that he is the son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the one that they had been looking for. Jesus is God. And what kind of God do we see Jesus to be in this text? Well, look back with me at a couple of verses. There's three ways that I think we see Jesus to be God in this text. In verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus made them. This wasn't optional that they get in the boat and go to the other side. What did they encounter on the sea? A storm. Did Jesus know that the storm was going to come in their life? Well, yes, he's God. So what do we see Jesus is as God in this moment? Jesus is a sovereign God. That as he made them get in the boat, and I would say even to go back to the story of the feeding of the 5,000, even in that moment when he said, we're not going to send them away, but you're going to feed them. This was strategic moment in the life of the disciples because Jesus is sovereign God. And he knows what is best for us and our faith in him and our journey with him. And so he knew what was best for the disciples was for them to get in the boat and go across the sea and experience the storm. Because Jesus is sovereign God. He is sovereign over your life. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7 says, I am the Lord and there is none other I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Nothing in our life happens outside of the watchful eye of the Lord. Nothing. And in this text, we see that Jesus is a sovereign God. And because he's a sovereign God, you can trust him. What I find interesting is that the disciples weren't complaining about the storm. Like they knew what Jesus had called them to do, to go to the other side of the sea. And so they've been rowing for seven or eight hours, only going two or three miles. I'm sure they were tired and wore out. And when they recognized who Jesus is, it was like, come on, Jesus, why'd you put us in this situation? Because they understood that Jesus is sovereign God. And I would encourage you today, church, if you find yourself in a difficult situation, if you find yourself in a struggle, that is not happening outside of the watchful eye of God. Because Jesus is sovereign God. This world is not out of control. It is in the perfect control of the sovereign God of the universe. He is in control. 
So we see that God is sovereign. Another thing that we see about God in this is that God is present or Jesus is present. If you look at verse 26 and 27, if you're reminded, but when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, of all the places that Jesus could have been in that moment, he could have walked on the land and not even went by the disciples. He could have taken another path on the sea. But I love that Jesus went by them. The idea is that Jesus was present with them as they were going through the storm. That when they recognized Jesus, when he said, I am, they knew it was God. He was present in the storm with them because he doesn't stop the storm until he gets in the boat with them. But he is in the storm with them. We see that God is a present God. It reminds me of Psalms 23 when the psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Even when I go through difficulty, God is with me. He is present. On Wednesday night, we had the opportunity to go to uh, the Lansing Correctional Prison Ministry there that we get the opportunity to serve at once a month. And Darcy and Andrew and Amber did a great job leading them in worship. And then we have a sermon. And if you've never went to a prison ministry before and heard prisoners, 20 to 30 of them, sing about freedom that they have in Christ and the grace of God, you have an experienced life. It does so much good for my soul to be in there and to hear these men sing. And after we sing, we typically give a message. And Eric Keller, one of the guys that goes with us a few weeks ago, it said, Steve, I want to share a message with the men. Would you mind if I spoke instead of you? And I was like, that'd be great, man. Go for it. And Eric brought a great message on the life of Joseph to the men. And Joseph's life is found in the book of Genesis. And if you've ever studied the life of Joseph, he was a guy who had a lot of good things happen in his life and a lot of bad things. He's his dad's favorite, right? Remember the story? His brothers don't like him, so they throw him in a pit. He gets sent to to Egypt, and he's put as a a, a slave in Egypt. He does such a good job there that he moves up in the ranks. Then he, he... Pharaoh's wife wants to sleep with him. He won't do it. So he gets thrown into prison, interprets dreams in prison. He's put in leadership in prison. Then they forget him in prison. Finally, years later, they remember that he interpreted dreams and Pharaoh needs his dream interpreted. And and, uh, uh, Joseph comes out of prison now and he's like second in charge. Then famine comes on the land. His brothers come. He has an opportunity to really get back at his brothers, but he doesn't get back at them. He uses his power to do good rather than to do evil in that moment. And as Eric is preaching through this message, he kept asking this question over and over again, because what it says about the life of Joseph is this, the Lord was with Joseph. So when he's in the palace, the Lord is with Joseph. And when he's in the prison, the Lord is with Joseph. And here's what Eric kept asking them over and over and over again. And I would ask you the same question today. What would you do if you were completely confident God was with you? In prison and in the palace. For Peter, it would be get out of the boat. Because God is with him. See, when I believe that God is with me, it gives me courage to live the life that God has called me to live. Whether I'm in prison or I'm in a palace. No no matter whether things are going great or things are going bad. Because God is present with me, it changes my perspective of life. The last thing that I see about God in this story about Jesus is that Jesus is a good God. I love in verse 30 that when Peter cries out to the Lord, save me, Jesus' response is to reach out and grab him. He's good. He didn't say, get what you deserve. I'm going to go ahead and walk in the boat when you finally realize what an idiot you are come on back to the boat no he reaches down and he saves him he's good I love that he calms the sea for the disciples I love in verse 36 that he 
people, everyone who would touch the hem of his garment, he would make well. well. Why? Because Jesus is a God who is good. And Romans 8 and verse 28 says that we know that everything works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, how, how do we know that God is good? How do we know that God is going to work everything together for good? Well, you know what Joseph would say? Joseph would say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because I know that God is good. He's going to work everything together for good. And where is this ultimately seen at? Not in the life of Joseph. This is ultimately seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. That what they meant for evil, to destroy this person who was claiming to be God. What they meant for evil by hanging Jesus on the cross was ultimately for our good. And you know that from Romans 5.8 where it says, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has taken us who are enemies of him and made us children of his. That shows us that God is good. So there's nothing that comes in your life that God can't turn for good because he is a good God. Because Jesus is good, we can have hope. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. How do we see Jesus to be God? He is sovereign he is good and he is present. What is our response to who Jesus is? How did the disciples respond in verse 33? They worshiped him. Worship is simply our response to who God is and what he has done. You and I were made to worship. When God created us and put us in the Garden of Eden, He made Adam and Eve to worship Him and Him alone. And what happened in the Garden? They started worshiping themselves. They wanted to be God. They wanted to know good and evil. They wanted to be the center of their universe. And that's how sin entered the world and brokenness entered the world. And they began to worship themselves rather than God. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, he says, this is what happens in the world. We begin to worship the creator or the creation rather than the creator. And when we see Jesus for who he is, it should lead us to worship Him. How do we worship Him? Through trusting Him. Through being courageous. Through having hope. That, that, those are ways that we trust Him because we're saying we worship you and you alone. Let me land the plane today by having you think of it in this way. The struggles that you are experiencing in your life may have more to do with what you believe about God than what you believe about your sin, your suffering, and your situation. Now let me say that again. The struggles that you are experiencing in your life may have more to do with what you believe about God than what you believe about the situation, sin, or suffering in your life. As Matthew is saying, I want you to see who Jesus is. And when they see who Jesus is, it affects the way they live their life. So throughout the pages of scripture, you see, Ephesians is a good book to example this. Chapters one through three, he talks about belief. In chapters 4 through 6, he talks about behavior. And what he's saying is, what you believe affects how you behave. And what I'm saying to you today is the struggles that you have in your life, whether with sin or with suffering or situ a situation that you're in, may have less to do with your behavior and more to do with what you believe about God. For some of you in the room, this could set you free if you really believed this. 
If you believed that it wasn't that you needed to have more boundaries set up in your life, that you needed to have more a structure in your life, or, or you need to have more of this in your life, rather than saying, what do I believe about God, and why is that affecting my addiction to alcohol? What I believe about God, why is that affecting the way that I view my work? What is it that I believe about God that is affecting the way I view my relationships? I think many things in our life come back to what we believe about God. Because what we believe about God affects how we live our lives. And so some of you need to take your eyes off your struggle with sin and suffering and the situation, and you need to really ask yourselves the question, what do I believe about God? First of all, do I believe that Jesus is God? And if I believe that Jesus is God, do I really believe he's sovereign? Do I really believe that he's present with me? Do I really believe that he is good? Because if we really believe those things, then I would propose to you it affects the way that we view life. So, I want you to do this. I want you to put your Bibles up, turn off your phones, put your notepad up. I'm going to ask you three questions to just make this at heart level for you. Let me ask you this question first. What is the struggle in your life? I just want you, I know many of us in this room have many struggles, but it could be a sin, it could be a suffering, it could be a situation. What is that one struggle in your life that you have? I just want you to identify that. Everybody got it? Just one. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he's sovereign over your life? Do you believe that he is present with you in the prison and in the palace? Do you believe that Jesus is good? Now listen, don't play games with me. I'm I'm asking you, do you really believe that? Not just in here. Not just in your head, but do you believe that in your heart? If you believe that. Jesus is God, he is sovereign, he is present, he is good. Then my last question for you would be this. How does your belief about God affect the way you live your life? With the struggle that you identify. See, we often want to jump to the how before we start with the belief. And for some of you, you're never going to get past that struggle and sin in your life, that situation in your life, until you really believe who God is. You'll never get out of the boat. You'll never experience the freedom that is available in Christ until you get your eyes off of your sin and your struggle and your suffering and you put them on who Jesus is and then you filter your situation, your struggle, your sin through who Jesus is. When you do that, it'll change your heart and life. You'll be set free you'll experience the freedom that can only come from Christ. You'll have those core memories with Christ. Not for necessarily the whole world to know, but for you to know it was because of who Jesus is. It changed my life. Father, thank you for these stories that you would inspire Matthew to write so that we, on October the 29th, 2023, could read them, study them, and see who you are.
that you are God. And that you are sovereign God, you are a present God, and you are a good God. And so, Lord, as we may not be experiencing the situations that the disciples were experiencing in this moment, whether looking at 5,000 people that you got to feed and you don't have anything, or in a boat that is in a storm and you see Jesus walking by, we may not be experiencing those same things, but Lord, we need to have the perspective that the disciples had, that truly you are the Son of God. And if we believe that, that will lead to worship in our lives. And so I pray for the person in this room that struggles with addiction in their life and all they can think about is the next drink, the next look, the next whatever it may be for them. Lord, I pray that they would take their eyes off of their addiction and put their eyes on who Jesus is. And until they understand who Jesus is, may they not take their eyes off of you. I pray for the one that is struggling with suffering in this room, whether it's physical suffering or whatever, mental suffering. I pray, Lord, that before they get to how does their view of you affect their suffering, I pray, Lord, that they would set their eyes on you, that they would be reminded of who you are and that that would change the way they live. And for the one that finds themselves in a situation and they just think, Lord, if I could get in a different situation, a different marriage, a different family, a different job, I'd be okay. Lord, I pray before they make any of those decisions that, Lord, they would look to who you are. That they would see you to be God who is sovereign, who is there with them, who's present, and a God who is good. And may that affect the way that they think about their marriage, about their work, about their suffering, because you are with them. Jesus, we join in with the disciples and we worship you today because truly you are the Son of God. In Jesus' name. Together we said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.